Please turn to Psalm 21. So we will finish this up today. We did the first six verses, or the first seven verses, last week. Today, it's verses 8 through 13. And I'll read the whole psalm. Psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You've given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. For you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Tell me then, is it easy for you, does it come natural for you to sing and praise God for his power, a display of power as it is shown here in the second half of Psalm 21? The difficulty, I can assure you, arises particularly because every Christian who calls upon the name of Jesus lives between two worlds, as John Stott once coined it. You live between two worlds. You live between two victories, one that is past, one that is future. And Psalm 21 also lives between two victories, one past, one a future triumph. This psalm, therefore, has two halves to it. The first six verses celebrate a past triumph. It's in the books. It's done. And the last six verses, 8 through 13, describe a future triumph that has yet to come. And this psalm, therefore, has a shape of last things. This psalm aligns with the two great events that mark and limit what the prophets used to call the last days. Those last days began with the coming of Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And they will end with his total victory upon his return. The last days, therefore, have flown under the radar like a stealth bomber, haven't they? Do the history books of the world chronicle the cataclysmic significance of this event 
the first coming, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For not only is it God's full retribution for our sins laid on Jesus so that he might taste death for everyone, it was also the first step, or I should say the first installment of the final judgment on the whole world. Jesus, in plain sight of the cross, said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And the next day, Jesus hung on a cross, was buried. And then again, after another couple of days, he was resurrected. And what he said had come to pass. Cast out, he said. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus saw his death and resurrection as a cosmic exorcism, using the very same terminology that the Gospels use to describe historical exorcisms or exorcisms proper, lesser exorcisms than what he had in mind when he said, now shall the ruler of this world be exorcised or cast out. Oh, yes, it was the first step towards the final judgment, the first installment of the final judgment. And we don't have time. We don't have the time to deepen our appreciation of this truth here. But I can say that judgment on the world has begun already since the cross in two ways. First, when Jesus submitted to the damnation of God, when Jesus became a curse for our sins, Jesus also handed Satan and all his subjects God's sentence of doom. Doom. The logic of this is rather simple. If the Son of God, the Son of God, holy, righteous, true, without sin, if the Son of God drank the cup of God's wrath, how much more will they drink it? And if they did this, if this was done to a green piece of wood, what will happen to the dry? Jesus himself used this logic on the way to the cross, shouldering the wood. Second, by atoning for our sins, Jesus truly, truly broke the power of darkness as a king who has won a decisive victory, a victory that is so decisive that it has cleared the road all the way to the final victory. We used the analogy of D-Day, establishing a beachhead in continental Europe during World War II in June of 1944. It came at a high cost, 30,000 casualties on a single day. But it was, and we know this now in retrospect, the beginning of the end of the Nazi empire. Because from here, from D-Day, 
the progress of the Allied armies was inevitable all the way to Berlin. And so it is with the cross. In breaking the power of, of darkness, Jesus has won a decisive battle. He has cleared the road to the final victory. How? Simply in this. Satan does no longer have power. And it was always granted. It was not his to begin with. But God granted him the power to keep the whole world under darkness. That power has been taken from him. And he is doomed to watch as his house is being plundered with every soul that is redeemed by the blood of Jesus that was shed for this very purpose to begin a process of evangelization, calling people from every nation into the kingdom of God's Christ. This process is underway with every soul that is called out and saved through faith in this gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ. And when that number is full, judgment day will come. So this will go on until the curtains fall to reveal the new creation. And all this, I hope you can see this, all this is a single, seamless process like a Swiss train. Swiss trains are known for it. A Swiss train that has left the station and it will arrive on time. It's clockwork. And so in this sense, or in these senses, Christ's cross and the last day are two installments of God's final judgment, God's final victory. It has already begun, and it will be executed. So now this brings us to the second half of Psalm 21, verses 8 through 13. Here David foresees a total defeat of all who oppose God's rule through his king. And as we said, we do not take liberties, do we? We do not take liberties in reading this in terms of the greater King Jesus, not David, who wrote this psalm. As we said, not only did Jesus affirm a fuller meaning of the Old Testament, but he said, I am the fuller meaning. Moses and the prophets, do you not know? They spoke of me. So do the Psalms. And therefore, all things will be subjected to Christ, and all will acknowledge him, and every knee will bow to him. And Jesus never grew tired while on earth. Warning, warning of the coming wrath. I must concede this. I'm sure that you are prepared to concede that the times and seasons have changed. Today, to speak of the coming judgment is considered the doctrine of devils. Even to broach the subject of the coming judgment is considered not only politically incorrect, but unkind, hateful. Even, even I dare say, in 
many evangelical circles. Now, we have our own courts of justice. Every country, every sovereign country has its courts of justice. And there's no one here who would say, well, we shouldn't have them, or we don't need them. But God, God may not have a court of justice of his own. How ironic. Still, still God's judgment must be total. It must be total with nothing left to do if he is to stand by his word because God has spoken of this day that is coming from the beginning. Enoch spoke of it. And if his name is to be vindicated in the end, judgment must be total. And not only this, it must be proclaimed among us because it concerns all people everywhere. Is what Paul preached. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. It must be proclaimed. It concerns all people. I myself, with my iniquity, I belong under this judgment. And I have no right to want to hinder it. It must be for God's sake. So today, we have an opportunity to raise a couple of questions about this final victory that Psalm 21 speaks of, about the, the last day. The second half of 21 offers two main perspectives on it, and perhaps to your surprise. The first is, the day of the Lord is the vindication, vindication of God's kingship. And the second, the day of the Lord is the consummation, the consummation of his steadfast love for you both at the same time. Well, we begin with the question, how is the day of the Lord a vindication of God's kingship? Good question. David identifies three specific aspects of God's final victory as depicted in verses 8 through 13. It will be violent. It will be thorough. And it will be certain. These three, and all three, are showing his coming to be proof, irrefutable proof of absolute sovereign power. So God's kingship will be vindicated. All right, the day of judgment, the final victory will be violent. Listen to this. The words speak for themselves. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear, or literally, at the time of your face. God will be in the world's face, finally. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. This is the language of Second Thessalonians chapter 1 that was read to you earlier. The Lord taking vengeance and flaming fire. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Now make no mistake about it. 
Christ appears as warrior king. He's dressed to kill. And there will be a cry of command. There will be the voice of an archangel. There will be the trumpet of God shaking the whole world to leave no doubt. This, this is both a declaration of war and of total victory all at once. And note, note how Psalm 21 is framed by references to God's strength and power. Verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. Now the last verse, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. It's the same phrase. We will sing and praise your power. So David praises and exalts God's power and his strength in the context of leveling the battlefield. And this, this is precisely how Jesus spoke of his final victory. Jesus, God's chosen king, to whom the Father has committed the judgment. He says, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven with power, power and great glory. And there will be a universal outcry of panic as there once was in Egypt with no place to hide. His sheer advent, his sheer appearance is preemptive and overwhelming, bringing the world to its knees, bringing the world to nothing. And resistance will not only be futile, it is ruled out at once. By his coming, his return should be the nightmare of every sinner. And then you will see a Jesus that very few people are willing to admit. Jesus will show no mercy. Jesus will take no prisoners. Because the time of his mercy and long-suffering, and patience, and the day of salvation are all gone. His return will be as violent as the images of Psalm 21, which, by the way, used to be standard fare in the ancient Near East. For not only will God judge everyone according to his deeds. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith, a free gift. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved apart from works. But judgment, my friends, judgment is according to works, on the basis of works and nothing else. Justice. And nothing but justice is the rule. We also tend to forget that God has a territorial claim to stake. What do you think? This is his creation. This is the world that he made. This is his creation. 
It has been raped. It has been violated by sin. Every form of sin under heaven. Every possible variation of iniquity and perversion. This is his creation. And not only this, the Bible teaches, if my reading is correct, that in some sense God has ceded the world to the devil who in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians, for example, in chapter 4 is called the God of this world. God has ceded the world to the devil. So, it must be cleansed. It must be purified. And hanging a sign on the world saying, under new management, well, that won't do. Or a facelift. Give the earth a facelift. That will not do. Only the fire, the purifying fire of God's judgment will do. I have a bird. <laughs> his name is Rusty. And some of you have made his acquaintance. Rusty is a good little fellow. He flies on my head, on my shoulder, and on my finger. But if you stick your hand into his cage, especially if he doesn't know you and he feels that you are not kosher, he will fiercely protect his home. This is his cage. And he will pick at your hand and he will make scary noises like... <coughs> Rusty is territorial. And he has this from God. For since the beginning... God has always promised his people land, a territory. And when Israel left Egypt for Canaan, that promise of land was fulfilled in a first token. Yes, it was provisional, and it wasn't even meant to last. In God's plan, it was not meant to last, but it was nevertheless a first fulfillment towards this land promise, this territorial kingdom of God. And when Israel left Egypt and they marched through the wilderness, fast forward to the Jordan, now they cross the Jordan, God didn't ask for that land. He didn't plead. He took it. God did not ask for Canaan. He simply claimed it as his own and for his own. A territorial claim to manifest the kingdom of God on earth as it was in those days. As I said, it was preliminary, it wasn't meant to last, but it was nevertheless an intrusion of a territorial kingdom in this old cursed world. And therefore, because of this territorial claim, there was holy warfare. Because there were people living in the land, they held it, and they wouldn't give it up. And there was conquest, and you bet there were casualties. All of these things. It was a cleansing of the land by the fire of judgment. In fact, that is how God spoke of this in the Old Testament. And it was an omen. 
It was a prelude. It was a preview of that great day of the Lord. For from eternity, God set his sight on more than the land of the seven nations of Canaan. No less than a whole new creation in which righteousness dwells forever and ever was the scope of God's plan. Has always been. And so it is that Israel lost their land due to their own sin that was also included in God's plan. And they actually never regained it as their own kingdom. Many people draw attention to the reformation of a state of Israel in 1948, and they make something very significant as far as eschatology is concerned out of this event. It does not have any significance. Not in God's plan. And I will not take time to speak more about this. But this is not a territorial kingdom of God, modern-day Israel, that is. And I love the Israelis, and I love the Jews, but this is not the kingdom of God, and it will not be either. There will be no return to a territorial claim in a tiny little land. The next step, the next stop on the itinerary is a new land, a new heaven, and a new earth, and a kingdom that encompasses everything with no limits, no strings attached to it either. And today, as you know, you look at me, I look at you. Today, we still do not have a territorial claim of land. We meet in a building like this, and many churches do. But this isn't the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is present more like a reign of God in the Spirit and through the Word. And wherever two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there is the kingdom of God. The church is the representation of the kingdom of God on earth, but there's no territory attached to it. Not here, not in this old land, in this old world. But on that day, God will stake his claim. And not only of some land, but of the entire cosmos as his. And to recreate it and to glorify it so that it may be the kingdom forever. And he will do it in the preemptive strike of Christ's return. And it will be violent. It will be violent. He will not ask permission to take his own. He will take it in an act of war, in a preemptive strike. And all who have opposed Jesus Christ and his reign, they will be judged and sent to outer darkness forever, banned from the kingdom and banned from the presence of Christ and he will establish his throne, and he will vindicate God's kingship. And this is what Revelation eleven fifteen says. As a matter of fact, I think that this is the one verse in the New Testament that speaks of this most succinctly. Revelation eleven fifteen, a public announcement on the day of judgment. The kingdom of this world has become 
the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It will be violent, a violent display of royal sovereign power. Now, the second aspect of the future victory of the king is its thoroughness. Does it occur to you? I'm sure it does, that everything you do, as much as you give it your full attention, always leaves something to be desired. Some of you are craftsmen, and even your masterpiece will have some weakness. Some of you are artists, and even your work is not perfect. Whatever you do, it's always imperfect. God's judgment will not be so. It will be thorough. It will leave nothing to be desired. Because you know, you know this and I know this, that God's sovereign rule has been contested. It has been questioned. It has been challenged. And it has even been mocked. People asking, well, now, if God exists, then why does he allow all these things that shouldn't be? There are orphans in this world. There is hunger. There are disasters. There's warfare. If he is God, if he exists, why doesn't he do something? Is he not able? Is he not willing? Or both? And the day will declare, yes, I allowed you to do as you pleased. And I gave you time to repent. And when I called you, you did not answer. And I allowed evil to go unpunished at times and in places. But that does not mean that I will not do anything about it. As I live, says the Lord, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And there will be no unfinished business, no loose ends, nothing left to desire. Ecclesiastes 3.15 says, that which is already has been, and that which is to be in the future has already been. And God seeks what has been driven away, and nothing gets away from him. God will find. He will find. And that's what David says. Your hand will find all your enemies. If you are an enemy of God, God will find you. He says your right hand will find all those who hate you. If you secretly hate God, he will find you. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of men. Now, please forgive me for saying this, but that sounds like genocide to me with no man left standing, no survivors on judgment day. That's because God will manifest his sovereign kingship in calling to account everyone and everything that has ever been an affront to his holiness, every idle word that I speak, every unworthy and foolish thought that I think, every act of injustice that I commit, 
God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And there will be no stone unturned. And there will be no unfinished business. It will be thorough. A display of absolute divine sovereignty. It is as though you hear the words, now you know. Now you know that heaven rules. This is heavy, isn't it? It's very heavy. But it gets even worse. Because the greatest scare, arguably the greatest scare, is the third aspect. The judgment is certain, so certain, so inevitable, inescapable. There are many things that you would consider certain in this world. You know the saying of death and taxes. We all do. But nothing more like this. David says, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. You know what this is saying. Try everything. Do whatever you purpose to do. I give you free reins. Do it. Go for it. God laughs at every attempt to resist what is inescapable. And you know, that happens to be, yes, that happens to be the quintessential proof of God's absolute control, absolute sovereignty to allow whatever people want to do, to give them what they want, to let them accomplish what they want to accomplish, to devise mischief, to allow all these things, and then to reel it all back in. That's the ultimate proof of divine sovereignty, the quintessential proof. God has prepared his throne for judgment. God knows the day and the hour when he will execute it through his son, Jesus Christ, because he, and only he, is the one who works out all things according to the counsel of his own will. He has no counselor. There's no one there who gives him advice. He does what he has ordained, and that's how it will be. It is so certain. The definition of a black hole is of an astral body of some kind or a region of space having gravitational force or a gravitational field that is so strong and so intense that nothing, no matter, no light, no radiation can ever escape it but is sucked into it. So is the final victory of the king. And that day has a gravitational force that is so powerful, so strong, that it is already working. You just don't know it. You don't see it. But even though it's so certain... You don't need to perish. No one needs to perish. 
All who call on God's name will be saved. It's what the apostles preached. It's what Jesus preached. You do not need to perish. You can be saved. Flee from the wrath that is coming while there is time. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Let him return to our God and he will abundantly pardon God pardons every sin, every possible sin, whatever it is. He pardons through the blood of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, God sent his son so that we may not perish. And God is a God not only of second chances or third chances or fourth chances. He gives you chances galore. As long as you breathe, there is hope. As long as you are here, there is time. There is the day of salvation. And it exists for this very purpose. God does not want anyone to perish. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He endures the weight of the sin of this world for this purpose, to save sinners. And the Psalter itself teaches it. Do you recall Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son. Now make peace with him. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But blessed are all who seek refuge in him. Is he your refuge today? Is he your only shield today? Then you will not come into the judgment. Your faith may be weak and tenuous. It's still faith. Your faithfulness may leave so much to be desired for. But his faithfulness is enough for the two of you. And here's our final point. The day of the Lord is the consummation of God's steadfast love. You may think of this as the last piece of the puzzle. It's the piece that you've been looking for but you couldn't find it because in this life and in this world, God's love often eludes us. God's love often confuses us. We hear of it, we believe it, but it is still difficult to hold it by faith. And so it eludes us. But God's steadfast love, as we said last week, at length, commenting on the first half of the psalm, God's steadfast love is the heart of this world. It makes the world go round. It makes the world to continue. God's steadfast love is the engine of this creation. This psalm has a structural and theological center in verse 7, where David identifies God's steadfast love by which he binds himself to his people as the reason for the victory that the king obtained on the battlefield. And it is also the reason for the final victory that God will grant, and it is yours in Christ. You have nothing to fear of God if you fear God. You have nothing to fear of God 
if you look to Jesus as your Savior. And we, you and I, we are to trust God for it. Because Jesus says, I send you like sheep. Sheep among wolves. 200 million Christians are persecuted today in every part of the world. And they have no lobby at the UN. Even though almost every other interest group is represented in some form before the council. Gay rights, gender-related issues, pro-life, and many, many other concerns are represented. Christians don't have a lobby at the UN. That's because wherever Jesus calls out, wherever the great shepherd calls out his sheep into his kingdom, <laughs> there will be a biting reflex of those who have other plans. The cross of Christ that marks the victory that is already in the books is the cross that he gives to his children to bear. He says, it's my yoke, it's not yours. You don't need to find the cross. You don't need to identify the cross as, maybe it's my sickness. Or maybe it's oncoming age and the ravages of this condition. That's my cross. Well, God uses all of these things and blesses us through them as he sanctifies us. But these things, all people share. That's not Christ's cross. That's not his yoke. His yoke is his yoke. And it's always the same. It belongs to someone else. It is Jesus' yoke. And it is his testimony. And when Jesus crosses your path in life, then you bear his cross and his testimony because he has crossed your path for good. When Jesus crosses your path and you put your trust in him, his steadfast love will carry you, carry you with arms invisible, even though it can get scary. But if you are a Christian, then you have decided to follow Jesus to the end. At the very least, that's what you decided. And I remember a little more than a year ago, one of our own sisters, Shaolin, she became a believer, and I asked her, do you want to be baptized? Shouldn't you be baptized? She said, yeah, I want to be baptized. I will follow him to the end. That's what she said. And she was right. That's the way it needs to be. And when Jesus crosses your path, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. None of them falls to the ground without his will. He will never forsake you. He will never forget you. His love is steadfast and firm to the end. It carries you. So you follow him wherever he leads. In fact, Jesus, Jesus knows what it's like. He's been here. He's seen this place. Jesus is an expert in all things human. Jesus is an expert in everyday life. 
He's holy, yes, but he's not unapproachable. And his heart is always open for you. His heart is not small or restricted. It's open all the time. And because Jesus knows exactly what it's like for you to live in this world, this is what he says. The rod of wickedness that oppresses. The rod of wickedness shall not rest on the lot of the righteous forever, lest he put forth his hand or stretch out his hand to iniquity. You see, we can only take so much. We are only dust. And even with the help of God, we can only take so much. He will not give you more than what you are able to bear. And when you are asked to bear, he will give you the strength to take the next step. So he will. The day of the Lord brings your salvation. Salvation from every form of evil. Even salvation from your own remaining sin. Every form of evil will at once be turned away and canceled out. And until that day, when God's love intervenes for you, you have what you need. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Amen. He will give you what you need. And you know how it feels when you get what you need, but not what you want? It feels like, is that all? Yes, for today it's all. That's all that you need for today. Say yes. Yes to Jesus. Yes to God. And when you do, your feelings, they will eventually catch up. You will begin to see, yes, he knows. He knows better than I do. And if you ever are forced to testify before those who seek your harm, then it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. That's how close Jesus is. The day of the Lord is not only the vindication of his kingship, but the consummation, the final enactment, the missing piece of the puzzle of God's steadfast love. Hallelujah. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the hope that this word puts into us, for the warning also not to be complacent, not to walk in darkness or to linger in sin, but to turn, turn from it, turn to our Savior Jesus. We thank you for the comfort that we have knowing that your steadfast love is the motor of our life. Better than a life insurance, you will see through what you have promised, what you have ordained, you will do because you are faithful. And now, Father, we ask that your faithfulness will guide us even a little further, even until the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.